Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show, where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health and longevity. With Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards is off working on the soundhealthportal.com. I currently am suggesting going to soundhealthportal.com, scrolling down just a bit and clicking on the Watch How video, or uh, excuse me, Watch How button, but it is a video. You will see a short video explaining how to record and submit your first recording. Then, after you see that, then go back to soundhealthportal.com, scroll down to the current active campaigns, such as Corona Conflict, BioDiet, or PTSD TBI, and choose one of those that's of interest to you. Don't just randomly pick one. Pick something that you're interested in. And those campaigns rotate through various software programs. So the campaigns are free for you to try. So pick one that's of interest to you, click on that campaign, and click the free voice analysis, and the system will walk you through submitting your recording. And you'll receive back an email within about, usually within one to two hours. I suggest sitting down with a cup of tea, reading that report, and then if you have a practitioner, such as a DO or an ND, or perhaps a regenerative medicine doctor, such as Dr. Gedney, and talking about some of the results and see if you can work on some of those imbalances, if there are some or something you'd like to improve. To hear and share replays of this show, 30 to 40 minutes after you hear the outro music, go to talktomeguy.com, all words, just like it sounds. Scroll down that page, and you'll see this show at the top of the episodes page. There are also archives of hundreds of hours of shows available there as well. There's a microphone icon at the bottom right corner of all pages. If you'd like to leave me a voice message with a question for today's guest, or a guest idea for a show, you can do that directly from that site. Just click on the microphone and you can leave me a message and I will be notified. With that, Karen Gedney, MD, author of 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor, is an internal medicine specialist who spent almost 30 years as a prison physician. She was designated as one of the best by the American Correctional Association and won a Heroes for Humanity Award for her work in HIV in the correctional system. When she left the prison, she became an advocate for holistic prison reform and sits on boards and organizations that advocate for inmate populations. She also consults for lawyers and the public defender's office regarding constitutional medical care for the inmate population. Her other interest is in increasing the health span of the aging population and became board certified in anti-aging and regenerative medicine when she retired from the prison. She's a speaker on aging gracefully and enjoys speaking at organizations as well as wellness retreats on rewiring and refiring to stay vital and relevant. She also became a certified hypnotherapist to expand her abilities to help people with their problems. Dr. Gedney joins us to talk about anti-aging with regenerative medicine. Welcome, Dr. G. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for giving me this opportunity. I'm surprised to find that it's been almost two years since we talked. <laughs> I'm like, yes. really? <laughs> wow. Time, I, I know we people laugh about as you get older that that begins to happen, but like, wow, really? Two years already? That's amazing. Well, I think what happens is it's always that perspective. You know, I'm in my 60s now, pushing 70, and... You know, one year is like one sixtieth, but if you're a kid and you're ten years old, a year is one tenth. So technically, your time in your sixties is going six times faster than it did when you were ten. That's how I wow. look at it mathematically. That's, am- right. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm in my seventies. I'm in my seventies, so therefore, like, wow, that's amazing. That's so true. It is really quite true. That's amazing. Um, I realized last time we talked, I never asked you this question about your book. What was your purpose in writing 30 Years Behind Bars? Uh, I think twofold. Number one, when I left the prison, I had um, this absolute feeling that I still wanted to make an impact in the prison. It's just after 30 years as a state employee, and then also the way it was swinging toward the dark side again, that it was time for me to go. But I wanted to figure out 
what to best do when I pivoted. And I realized that the outside world really has a sort of skewed look at the prison system in terms of uh, the media, TV shows, you know, movies, and (laughs) they had never really looked at the perspective of someone who was oriented to really understand and try to heal not only the inmates, but try to make the system, uh, let's say, more a medical type of um, enterprise versus punishment, shame, harm, and releasing people worse off than when they came in. And I thought, well, people can spout statistics and programs, but that's not what motivates people. Stories motivate people. And I realized that there had never been a female prison doctor who had ever written a book in the United States about their experience or prison. And I was a bit unique in that not only was I a female prison doctor, I did 30 years. That's a bit sort of unheard of for most prison docs. And I also sort of grew up in the system because I started, you know, when I was young in my thirties. And, um, and also, I wanted to, let's say, write it right after I left so I could, let's say, capture everything that I thought would be important. Plus, I had this unusual um, trajectory that it wasn't just being a doctor. I became a major teacher in the prison, and I created these volunteer-type life skill courses, and I loved, absolutely loved teaching the inmates. And I would keep sometimes their homeworks or their writings or their poems or sometimes in the prison. Whenever inmates want to see a doctor, they write what's called a kite, which is a piece of paper that says, I need to see the doctor because of X, Y, Z. And then it would go into the medical department. They'd be scheduled for me or or someone else, like a dentist. And sometimes guys would write like six or seven pages of just sort of like like ridiculousness over the top and some of them were so good that I just had to Xerox them and save them <laughs> because they would complain about other people or doctors. And uh, and it, it's like you have a bunch of children and there's sometimes they create or say things that are so good you want to just like jot it down and keep it. I had a lot of journals and I had a lot of the writings from the inmates, and I thought, well, this is the time. Now I'm left. I can write, and I'll have to change all the names, but the prison can't say that I can't do it because it's really just my perspective. And I wanted to make this impact where the outside world saw the system through my eyes, but really the eyes of someone oriented, who was curious, who wanted to heal, who wanted to return them better, and who was not attached to shame and punishment as a behavior modification. Oh, there's a whole show right there. Um, We'll get back to that. (laughs) There may be another show on that. That's an amazing perspective. And especially for somebody who was in the system for so long, and the incident that people will have to read your book about where you were attacked and held prisoner, you still came out the other side with this perspective is really, it's an amazing, it's an amazing, the the word that comes to mind actually is a, is a gift of of sorts where it really, I mean, you really did come out with this perspective, which is amazing of not only wanting to keep those materials, some people would react and, and burn everything and want to have nothing to do with it. You are, you are still active today on prison reform because of you, yeah. you have the experience and the observations of that experience of we need to change how things are done here if we want change to happen. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, 
you look at the United States in terms of its mass incarceration and you look at how it, let's say, is the system is set up and how many guys return to prison, that's the recidivism rate, but also how many men are destroyed on the inside from a mental standpoint, whether you're going to the extreme of solitary confinement, which really destroys people mentally, except for the, let's say, the strongest minds, like a Mandela possibly. And you look at the fact that they've been away for years, so their contacts with their families and their loved ones are all messed up and you toss them back into society. And if you're in there 10 or 20 years, the technology is such that you're lost, but plus you leave with hardly anything and you're expected to like get right back up and run. And if you're on parole, at least in Nevada, you're expected to pay the parole officer every month to watch you. (laughs) I mean, oh yeah. And then when they leave, Uh, Nevada is notorious for, um, what should I say, if a guy tries to save money because they're doing their little jobs in the prison, uh, they will confiscate their money and say, oh, you used medical care. We have $8 copays if you see a doctor. Uh, So, you know, you saved X amount of money. We're taking this for your debt. And then that medical debt follows them, too. It's, wow. a, it's a really, it's a system that it, it's hard to comprehend how guys who do well in the outside world actually do that. And they don't unless they have significant help or one of those unbelievable fortitudes like a Mandela. I mean, otherwise, mm-hmm. it just doesn't work so well. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if I heard or read you talk about this, but there was this thing that blew my mind that up until 1976, when the Supreme Court made a decision that prisoners needed to offer prisons needed to offer medical care, what was happening before 1976? Yeah, prior, and it's known as the Estelle versus Gamble Supreme Court case, where. Uh, they amended the Constitution, uh, and it had to do with cruel and unusual punishment. And the wording was something on the order of prisons could not be deliberately indifferent to serious medical need. Now, when that became an amendment, then that opened the door to inmates suing prisons or lawyers seeing money that maybe they could get. And that... Uh, started changing things. But before that happened, the warden ruled the institution. And there were, and and the example I can use is in the HIV arena, uh, Florida as an example, because I was very aware of what was going on there. Florida had this mindset, even when the HIV drugs came out, their system decided, well, in their mind, they're like, well, they did it to themselves, you know, they're not going to get anything, and they just let them die. Mm. And they were given a huge, you know, civil action type of suit against the Florida Department of Corrections in those days. And I still remember because I met the guy who replaced the former medical director, and his name was uh, David Thomas. And he was an MD and a JD. So he was a doctor mm. and a lawyer, had two wow. you know, degrees. And he became involved with that HIV arena. Uh, but wardens decided, and you know, if you were, let's say, a troublemaker, nobody liked you, or you were a racist, or you had issues with whoever, whoever ran that institution whether it was the warden or a prison director at the state level, could just say, nah, it's too expensive, we're not going to do it. In fact, today I got called, and this is a friend who called, and their father went into, and I don't know which state this was, but he went into prison. He had 
uh, two years prior had a heart transplant and you need anti-rejection drugs. So he goes into the prison and those drugs are expensive and the prison system decided, nah, we're not going to give you the anti-rejection wow. drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he leaves and then basically when he left, uh, he went to his doctor and his doctor goes, uh-oh, started him on the drug and one day later was dead, you know, because, I mean, his heart had, uh, mm-hmm. you know, his body was rejecting this heart and the drugs weren't there anymore and then he just tipped over the edge. So they, wow. that that's the type of stuff that was going on before 76. And the Supreme Court only got involved because it was a little bit too, what should I say, embarrassing and onerous. And of course, families started fighting back like, hey, my father, my brother, my husband, etc. You can't not fix his broken leg or you can't, he's suffering of severe chest pain and he died. How could you not have him see a doctor? Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons I was placed in the prison in the 80s, because Nevada was under huge lawsuits, and uh, they needed docs, couldn't get docs, because in those days, they didn't pay well. Uh, It was very dangerous in those prisons, you know, in terms of hostage taking. I mean, that's why I was held hostage in my second year on the job. So they couldn't get docs, and the governor actually petitioned the federal government the National Health Service Corps to cough up uh, two National Health Corps docs. I, I was the first one. And um, I ended up, you know, <laughs> it's not the thing that I thought I would end up with. I thought when I signed the contract, it was like, you'll be in a manpower shortage area, like an inner city or a rural area. And I thought, oh, that's great. I'll help the underdog. Mm-hmm. And then they go, oh, Karen, uh, we're sending you to prison. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, wait, wait, I don't think that was on my contract. Yeah. But it, and I was, there was probably no one more naive than me being thrown into a male prison in the good old boy world of Nevada. Wow. And, um, but I came to find that a lot of the underdogs and uh, people who had grown up poor or without advantages or dysfunctional families or mental illness, whatever, a lot of them were thrown into the prisons, you know, because they did things out of, uh, well, stupid decisions, basically, or violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The very first restaurant I ever, I was a chef for 20 years. <clears throat> and the very first restaurant I went in, uh, worked at, I started out just as a like a, a line cook. I didn't have any training, but the it was a family friend. And in the year, in the four and a half years that I worked there, he always hired ex, you know, people out fresh out of prison. And yeah. his deal, his deal was, you show up and you work, uh, work, we'll get along fine. I don't care what you've right. done, where you've been. You know, he was very. It was, he was also German, so he had that right. heavy yeah, yeah. German accent and the like tough guy, and he was a tough guy. Mm-hmm. And that was the relationship they had. So I worked with a lot of convicts in my early days of the restaurant world, and there was never any, you know, occasionally there'd be a little, you know, they didn't seem to last very long, but I mean, it was really hard work. And he demanded you be there on time, and there was a schedule, and if you weren't there, you were going to get fired. And a lot of them got fired for that. But I heard a lot of stories of people who were in prison who were, yes, somebody knifed somebody or some, you know, a bad thing had occurred. But there were also those other people who just were in the wrong place at the wrong time and spent two years in jail because of that. There was always, a, as you say, a human story behind the event. And that was part of their coming back into society and, and being dishwashers in a restaurant or a line, you know, beginning to do prep work was once you showed them respect and you showed them that you were going to treat them like anybody else in the restaurant, which means if you screw up, you're going to get yelled at. We don't care where you're from. They really blossomed. A number of them blossomed into like just regular workers who never, nobody would ever expect they'd been in jail. It was, it was, it was an amazing thing to be with that many, you know, ex-cons because in four and a half years, that's a lot. But it was just, as you said, a lot of them were 
wrong place, wrong time, or stupid decision based on some familial issue or that kind of thing. Yeah, they were a lot of dysfunctional children who had grown up, and especially men who had grown up with no decent adult male role model. Mm -hmm. So they had all that testosterone, but had never learned to control it in a reasonable manner that a father would have, you see what I mean, helped them. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or an uncle or something, but a lot of them were just raised by little mommies and aunties who, uh, you know, lost them when they were teenagers. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I did bring my husband in to teach in the prison and uh, he was black. So that really helped. And he was a, a platoon leader of Vietnam and he helped, developed the first incarcerated vets chapter in the prison, mm. but he helped reduce a lot of the racism because of his teaching and uh, and also because <laughs> I, I roped him into the first time uh, speaking for Martin Luther King Day. I roped mm. him in for that because the NAACP incarcerated chapter on the prison, uh, their speaker canceled like a day or two before this event, and it was this is when the prison was a bit progressive in the early days when they had a, somebody in that position. And they came to me and said, oh, man, Doc, uh, you know, our speaker canceled. Can your husband talk? Because through the grapevine, they knew I was married to a black man. Mm-hmm. And I went, I went home <laughs> and I asked my husband, Cliff, I said, hey, Cliff, uh, can you come in and talk about uh, Martin Luther King? And he looked at me like I was like an idiot. He goes, uh, Karen, I'm a finance guy. I said, I know, but <laughs> you, you know, you are black too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So that, uh, and he came in and the inmates loved him and they were right away. Hey, it's Mr. Macklin. He had a different name than me. Mr. Macklin, please, uh, you know, you got to teach in our college program. This is when Pell Grants still existed in prisons. Wow. Um, yeah, Pell Grants existed until 94 when Clinton, unfortunately, agreed on the tough on crime bill and Pell Grants were decimated. And that was a huge mistake for this country. Mm-hmm. And now they're now finally they're starting to come back, but it's like in fits and spurts, you know, trying to get it back in the prison. All those years, they just didn't have Pell Grants, so education was uh, very, very low. Yeah. For well, the college jump, programs. I want to jump mm-hmm. to this really great post you have on <clears throat> discoverdrg.com. I'll put this in the show notes. On choosing rewirement and retirement. I think Mm -hmm. it's such a great post. It's not long. It's not long, people. It's just a really straight up (laughs) post, but it's really good. And it really is part of your reworking or your ongoing education or the next phase that you're into now, which I think is very cool. So please talk about that. That's a rewirement and refirement. Yeah. You know, when I retired, um, I absolutely realized that I had to be involved in something. Uh, Prison reform is just a piece. But the thing that really made me think about that was my father was an IBMer for 36 years, you know, retired, and then the next year was dead. And he was a health nut. And it was Mm. a huge shock to me. But it had sort of verified all those things you hear that when people uh, retire and they sort of lose their schedule, their identity, who they think they are, a lot of times the body goes, okay, uh, what are we doing? Oh, we're not doing anything, so we might as well just crump. And I did not want to get myself in that predicament at all because I had seen it in too many other people as well you know, where I would see doctors who would stop being a doctor and they sort of got lost. And I thought, okay, I don't want that. I don't want to get old and decrepit. I don't want to lose my marbles. So what am I going to do? 
you know, there's one thing for me where I funneled into the prison reform arena, but that was sort of a path I was already on. But I thought, no, I, I want to also do other things. And that's when I decided, okay, I need to educate myself in a like a different niche. And for me, it seemed that anti-aging and regenerative niche was blossoming, but also was interesting. And I want to slow down my aging process as well. So I did that. And that's through the ABAARM, you know, world. Uh, then you get a whole year of training and then you get certified. You got to take an oral exam, a physical exam, and then you get certified in it. And I found it uh, interesting from the science perspective, but what I also realized, which didn't exactly sit as well with me, they also were very into, let's say, the uh, cosmetic side of it, okay, <laughs> which uh, it was to me, I like the foundational things, but you get so much on the icing that people are so attached to you know, having that flawless Botoxy face and things like that, that really didn't uh, resonate with me. But uh, the then the longevity arena really started going to town in terms of researchers. And I find it interesting. It's really the tech billionaires <laughs> who are funding a huge amount of money because they want to stay in their prime and uh, like top doggy for a long time. Mm -hmm. But the research on aging and, of course, with the that ability to so cheaply now identify genes and understanding epigenetics and really honing down on what are the things that separate people who age well and not, plus the research on social connections now and how people have real issues with um, loneliness. And even though we have this technological society where supposedly everything is so connected, how could you be lonely? Mm -hmm. And people are lonely because they somehow have forgotten that we're social animals. And yeah. that means we, we want to be in physical space, touch space, and not just a virtual space. A virtual space is, has its niche, but social animals do not do things virtually. I mean, we're wired emotionally, in a, and uh, so that, that interests me. Then the incredible research that just has been popping up on sleep and certain foods and certain supplements. So to me, it's just all interesting. And uh, and I'm a very, I'm that German pragmatic type of person, and I, I always have the thought system, why don't we build the foundation of the house before we put a, uh, a fancy paint job on it? You know what I mean? So <laughs> you don't think the Botox is going <laughs> to fix the issue of wanting to be younger? Is that is that what you're saying? Can we say that? Yeah, I'll say that. You don't have to say that. Yes, yes, that's 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 what I'm saying. You know, you know, I look at my face and I go, okay, my face is a bit older, it's a little bit more wrinkly, and I'm a blonde too. You know, so your face doesn't do as well as Mediterranean faces. But mm -hmm. I'm thinking, oh, I just am not into like getting the tux and the Botox and the this and the that. It's, uh, I still like to be the uh, nature type, if you know what I mean. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that's, that, but that's just more me. And, and I absolutely adore physical activity. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I can't remember, I think, you know, when we talked two years ago, I let you know that I got talked into competing in uh, the bikini model ultra masters <laughs> i'm laughing because i've talked to you enough to think no that that's so not like you that's so like that amazes me i heard that again recently and i thought really that's amazing and you won talk a little bit more about that wow Oop, dr g are you there huh 
I think we're still oh. here. Oh, yeah. You're, you're now you're back. Here, right? You're back. Okay. okay. Yep. You're back. You know, you know what happened? This is embarrassing, but my cheek touched that button on my phone. Yes. That, yes. <laughs> that, that of course. Tipped it off or something. <laughs> yeah. But the fun story is I was speaking somewhere and, oh, I know, I was speaking at Truckee's Meadows Community College. So I'm speaking at a college thing on prison reform, and their prior president of the college, Maria, came up to me and, uh, you know, she was in her 70s and she said, hey, Karen, um, I just think you uh, should, one, get to know me and two, I'm really into um, health and fitness and I am a competitor in bikini and physique and this and that. And then she shared her story that when she retired as a, what, a college president in her 60s, she had, you know, gained weight, she was pudgy, and she was didn't feel so hot. And she told me that she got scared because she saw a lot of her compatriots who retired got sort of fat and, uh, well, dropped off with medical problems and died. And she thought, oh, man, I don't want to do that. She got a personal trainer and a nutritionist, and then, like, three years later was a, a competitor, <laughs> Wow, and and then you know in her in her seventies was a competitor, and winning all sorts of titles, and she was like, "Hey, Karen, you know, you can be an ultra masters and you can compete." And I was like, "All right, that sounds very weird to me." You know, I, I mean, I I love wearing bikinis like in Club Med and stuff like that, but prancing around on a stage and sticking out your butt and getting spray painted. I was like, eh, I don't know about that. But she sort of nudged me like, okay, just once, Karen, just do it once with me. I'm like, oh. So, and then she was like, and I have this bikini model who teach us how to, like, I don't know, strut more and this and that. Uh, and I did it more for a lark, you know, one of those things. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do this once just for the hell of it. And, and then I won. And I have no interest in ever going and getting spray painted brown again either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, but it's it's sort of fun in uh, what should I say in some of my lectures to throw up my bikini shot. You know, like okay, yes. here I am prison doc, and here's my bikini shot when I did right. this, mainly <laughs> to uh, do something new. And I think for the whole rewiring system and refiring the way I look at it is that people have to do something out of their comfort zone. To be able to grow, you've got to do things that you really haven't done before. And then in terms of physical activity, you have to do things that physically you also haven't really done before. And that lets your mind and your body both be aware like, oh, we're learning new things. Well, that means we're still growing i.e. we're still getting better, not, you know, like getting in a rut and then going downhill. Mm -hmm. So when, you know, people say, hey, you want to do this or you want to try that, yeah, I'm sort of up for doing new things uh, physically or mentally just to push myself a little bit more. Well, and, 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 and from talking to you, enough both backstage and from doing shows with you you seem like you're what i would call in the best of ways an aggressive lifetime learner or do you you seem to yeah. i think well I, i'm saying this about myself also i right. like learning it's what keeps yeah, me I, vital learning and interviewing people is what keeps me vital so i i see that in a kindred spirit in what you are you're really interested in learning yeah, in fact, I have to learn. Otherwise, um, it, it's like I have, for me, exercise and learning go together. I tend to mix the two. Like when I was weeding this morning when it was cool, I, I was listening to a book written by Kevin Kelly, who is one of those technology guys who was familiar very 
early and had been an editor of Wired magazine, you know, back in the day, but just his whole perception of where humanity is going is just sort of interesting to me when I listen to guys who um, have had a different trajectory than I have. So I love listening to extended podcasts. I'm very fond of uh, Peter Atiyah's medical side, Sam Harris's neuroscientist side. You know, I just bounce around all over the place with podcasts because when I work out, I know a lot of people listen to music. Mm-hmm. When I listen to music, it's when I'm dancing and I take ballroom dance classes, which taps my brain, like, okay, here's the rumba, here's the nightclub two-step, here's, you know, the cha-cha, the waltz, okay, that's the Viennese waltz. So in that type of, um, for music, I love to dance. And I had the best comment. I was out dancing. Sometimes I go out totally by myself. There's a little place where I live in Carson City, in one of the casinos called Gina's, but, you know, they have a, a very good band who's playing, you know, things from the 80s or 90s, you know, so older people go there because uh, I don't want to listen to very, very, very loud techno odd things where, you know, 20-year-olds are jumping around, mainly because it hurts my ears, especially after that stupid concussion grenade um, from the hostage event. But so... I go out and I, you know, the band starts. Nobody really wants to start dancing. I just go up by myself and start dancing, you know, like like in my own little world. And, you know, when I, last week when I was walking past, one of these guys, you know, said, I love to watch you dance. It's like a work of art. Mm-hmm. And I thought mm-hmm. that's the best compliment I ever got with dancing. But I love to dance. And I love learning new steps, and uh, and of course with music, that's more my love versus just listening to you know mm-hmm. music. When I mm-hmm. listen, I somehow feel I want to learn something. <laughs> well, in keeping the mind, you're keeping your mind active, whatever the activity is, whether it's weeding the garden and being. You're a physical person. Yes. You like being physical. And this is yeah. a different kind of being physical. This uses a combination of, of thinking and remembering and recalling and body movement all in the same flow. It's like doing Tai Chi. Right. When you first start doing right. Tai Chi, it's very like, what am I doing? Where are we going? Why is this? But then at some point you settled into the groove. And Yeah, I and, I, and I think that whole sort well. of thing, you know, that whole rewire, refire thing is you you need to have different disciplines that the body has to integrate, which actually ups its ability to still keep its marbles. Mm-hmm. Nicely. I'll, I'll quote you on that. That's good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> still yeah. keep your marbles. That's great. Yeah, still um, keep your marbles. Now, in combination with longevity and regenerative medicine, you added in hypnotherapy. Yeah. Why did you add it? What oh, is, yeah. What is the benefit <laughs> in your mind of being able to do hypnotherapy with people? Or patients. You're a doctor. um, You can call them patients. I forget that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is, um, one of the platforms that I like to just snoop around on and take some educational little courses is Mind Valley, you know, by Mm -hmm. uh, Lakiana Vishiani, that guy. And then they were um, advertising, you know, one of these sort of six-month certified hypnotherapy classes. And they were taught by these, uh, uh, Paul McKenna, one of these English guys who's extremely well-known as a hypnotherapist. And I love English accents, too. Mm. He and then two other hypnotherapists were really giving this class and talking about how during the COVID times, how they found that Zoom, on Zoom, you know, people still wanted, you know, access to a hypnotherapist and in those days you know because of the keeping people apart they started zoom and found that that could be almost really as effective as you know sitting in your office or something and um, they had been doing it 20 or 30 years and were teaching it and i just liked the way they went about it where 
this course was every week. Uh, they really taught the, let's say, the basics. They taught the reasons why. They incorporated their 20 or 30 years of, you know, knowledge. They had labs where you worked with the other people uh, to hypnotize, you know, practice and everything. But I did it because it was something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and also it fascinated me why some people are more suggestible than others. And since I'm, I feel that I'm not that suggestible, you know, like I, I've seen hypnotherapists um, especially in the Reno Tahoe back in the day era where they'd be stage hypnotherapists. Mm. And I could see the people where some people were faking it, but some people you would look at their eyes and their eyes were a bit glazed over and you realize, no, that person actually is a sort of in a bit of a trance. And how did they get there so quickly? And why that mm-hmm. person, but not this person? You know, it was more a curiosity factor for me. And um, so this this is sort of, not that I, you know, I like to do, use it as a potentially another tool in my bag that I could maybe help people. It's not that I'm like really in the major business piece where people really are trying to get, I don't know, you know, clients and charge them. I'm, I'm sort of in the, it's a tool. And, uh, and I was talking about it on one of the radio shows. And this was some radio show in uh, California. And then uh, imagine there's a lady who lives in a town near me, Genoa. And her sister hears me talking about one of the things that I can do is hypnotherapy. She calls her sister and says, oh, my God, I'm in California. I heard this lady. Do you know she lives right in the city next to you? And you should call her up, and especially because she's also a prison doctor, blah, blah, blah. And this woman called me up, and she shared her story where I listened to it, and I think, wow, this is what's so phenomenal about podcasts and radio. And the woman said, um, you know, my sister referred me, and uh, is there any way you could maybe help me in the next day or two because of X, Y, Z? And she shared that two years ago or so, her husband was visiting his family in Georgia, and a black man shot her husband, killed her husband, and killed some of his family members too. And then um, she was facing a memorial service that she had sort of put together in California and just couldn't sleep. And what she couldn't really sleep about was she and her husband were against the death penalty. Okay. Mm. Okay. Now, I am known in the, hip, in the prison world as uh, against the death penalty, in fact, I refuse to be part of it in, in the state of Nevada, even though they try to pressure me into writing the drugs to kill people. Um, so I've been vocal against that. And uh, she did not want to pursue the death sentence, but his family did. And uh, so that was quite a deal for her. So she couldn't sleep. She just had horrible, horrible time sleeping. And she wondered, could I help her with sleep? And I thought, well, you know, I can certainly try. And then uh, she actually came to my house. We did a session. She left. And then the next day, you know, she texted me back and said, you know, I just wanted you to know I did sleep that night. Uh, hmm. So, and, and, you know, maybe she was just dead tired too. But I think the fact that... Um, you know, sometimes people have problems, and one of the first steps is to see if they reach out and can be helped by somebody else, right? But that was just, you know, uh, I mean, I would have never thought about that, that you have someone who deals with the racism, the the prison, the the death sentence, and then here I'm a ex-prison doc who now does some hypnotherapy on the side and I was a niche for her, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of different. 
It is an amazing, I'll call it a coincidence, but it seems like it's a bigger thing than that because that's an amazing combination of your skills, yes, your life right, experience, right. and her need was like right. made. And plus it was the match first made. time I ever, yeah, and also it was the first time on a radio show. I mean, it was the first time on a whatever radio thing that I actually even mentioned that, oh, I got certified in hypnotherapy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, and do you ever are you you're st- are you still mentoring children of people in prison? Because I know you did a lot of work on that, yeah, trying to break yeah. the cycle. Right. I I did, and uh, the two youngest kids um, who I mentored when they were seven and three. Um, now the seven year old is going to turn twenty, so she keeps intermittent contact with me, and she's in the area. Her brother. Um, he unfortunately uh his mother moved to a whole different town so he's sort of out of the picture but once in a while i'll get a text you know from him the other through three are doing exceptionally well and my husband really mentored them and i was a bit of a sidekick uh but the oldest is in arizona uh, he had a, he got a master's in computer and literacy in college, but now is pursuing a pilot's license because that's his wow. dream. Yeah. So, and then the second girl, Nina, uh, she was doing uh, teaching English in Japan because um, she um, sort of what should I say focused on that language, Japanese. And mm-hmm. also was a saxophone player and this and that. And so she contacted me and said, hey, Karen, I'm back from Japan. And, you know, I fell in love with this guy and I want you to meet him. <laughs> and he's half Filipino, half white. And he's, uh, you know, X amount of years older than me. And I'm like, okay, let me check this one out. And so, you know, they came for dinner. But... uh and, and Joseph, um, who is working as a superintendent in a company, uh, is doing very well. So it's it's interesting how they contact me and also how sometimes um, ex-felons from the past, you know, contact me to let me know what they're doing. And a lot of the ones who used to work for me specifically as my clerks, um, they are doing exceptionally well. But they were also sort of destined on the path because in the prison they chose to be of service, like helping as a volunteer, and two, they were workers inside the prison, and they pursued education. So they had the, you know, the uh, three hits that made them be able to be successful. Mm -hmm. And you want to hear something really different that you probably don't because we haven't talked for two years? You know, after my husband died in 2019, you know, I was a bit lost. And then I had this house. And uh, so I um, had the opportunity where one of the guys who used to work for me, who did 20 years in the prison, he paroled to Reno. And at that time, you know, Reno, because of Tesla and all these plants, uh, rents were just extraordinarily ridiculous. And uh, and so I gave him the opportunity. I said, hey, uh, you know, I have a big house and I've got a room and a, I mean, a bedroom, a bathroom and a den that was really more my husband's domain, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I, and, uh, you know, you can be my housemate and uh, help me out a bit with the house and the property and, you know, have your room for free, basically, till you get on your feet. So he has now lived with me for four years and be and is an absolute excellent housemate. And he helped rejuvenate my older house and rejuvenate my acre of sagebrush <laughs> that we cleared together. Because my husband was not into well, you know, outside work, and he was like a clutter mouse, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like some guys just collect a lot of stuff, and I just let my husband do it because I was working all the time, and, you know, his area, like his den, was, you know, absolutely a clutter mess. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and my husband never really was into fixing things, you know, that just wasn't his thing. And so now I've got a guy who has a lot of the good qualities my husband does, and he has these qualities of like wanting everything to be uh, fixed. And so he's repainted the inside of my house. I have no flooring. I have no carpets. Um, so it's it's a symbiotic relationship that really works. You know, some people would think, what are you, crazy, taking in an ex-felon? But uh, it it's actually was the best for me. But also That's I knew. That's really great. You know, I knew who I was getting, you know, versus like you, I don't know, like you put out a thing like, hey, you know, you want, I mean, you put something in the paper, you don't know what you get. But if you have that ability like I did to watch someone for years, years, under the worst circumstances being the best human being, you have a whole different feel of who you're getting, right? Well, and he knew you. So, he knows you from he knew, 20, right. you know, and he your, time, your time together in jail, shall we say. Right, that's right. right. In prison, right, that's right. And he was um, my head clerk for the program I ran, so he was highly conscientious and highly organized in a logistics type of thinker mm-hmm. um, and also really oriented for service. In fact, when we opened the hospice thing eventually, like, uh, and it sort of opened in the prison uh, when I was leaving because it took that long for them to get their acting gear, even though he's very, like, cleanly and OCD about cleanliness, he Mm -hmm. uh, became a hospice worker, and he said, I really wanted to do the service. He goes, but I didn't know if I could handle poo and puke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And he, he did it because he had to get over that hump, you know, in his like, oh, be, just because he wanted to be of service. So that's a whole different type of guy. A whole different way of thinking. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so once he, again, that seems like much more than coincidence. That seems like, you know, brought together in a certain yeah, way. Because yeah, yeah. Worked, right. worked with you and for you in prison, and right, now he's right. working for you again in a in a right. more obviously hospitable setting and he's doing hospice right. work which is really gnarly work i know i know i know so that you know and uh and he works um you know now in reno so he works a lot and mm-hmm. uh he um so he's not home all that often but he uh really enjoys keeping everything really nice. In fact, sometimes he gives me a hard time where he goes, Karen, uh, you left crumbs on the counter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you'll live. (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. It's only crumbs. Um, Yeah, that's right. You'll live. (laughs) I see we're we're kind of, we're not there ways off, but we have about seven or eight minutes left. But I really want to ask you, I think you wrote about the, I can't remember if I, by now I've read, listened, and studied a lot about you again. And would you talk about your thoughts on our society as being reactive versus proactive? Yes, I I think that the United States on a whole, and it may be because it is very much a capitalistic type of society, but also a very individualistic type of society, I think those two components put it more in the reactive arena. And also, I think that uh, because of the the individual side and also it conquering the, the West and conquering the Indians and everything, uh, just the way our history was, which is sort of an ugly history, it's always this, I have to be proactive and I have to survive and success is climbing to the top and um, looking at things holistically is more of a female thing or more of a, you know, goody two-shoes things that unfortunately I think the U.S is has motivations that put it at risk for not looking at things 
as a whole and also uh, not wanting and for the divisions between the ultra-rich and the people on the bottom. Mm-hmm. They're not as social, socially oriented. They're more individualistic and oriented for competitiveness and for newness. So I think that trajectory is something the U.S. to realize how it was formed in the crucible, let's say, but then take a step back and realize, okay, what was good about it, but also what's hurting us, and let's figure out how You touched the mute button again. Et cetera. Now you're back. You were gone for about five seconds. Um, Uh Uh-oh. Yes. Now you're back. We don't want to put ourselves in that. Yeah. We don't want to put ourselves in that position where we uh, are at risk for havoc or revolution because there's such a spread between the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would also add to that in in my thinking that we seem to have forgotten that we are social animals. Right. And I feel that that also that that pushes people apart from being social because they want to argue about stuff too much. They think that that's a formal conversation is going to do that polarization makes it difficult to be social. Whereas I talk to people frequently who we may have different beliefs, but we still can have a common conversation. And I think that's missing, that social animal part. Yeah, and I would throw in that I've always um, done a fair amount of my talks on what I consider the three C's, which is curiosity, compassion, and collaboration. And I think that when you look at polarization, people really aren't curious about other people. They're mostly like, you're wrong and I'm right. And when I look at compassion, it's that ability to try to understand and then try to heal or make something better. And if anything, the hardest thing for me over time is collaboration, because in the prison, I had, uh, well, that was a very tricky situation to collaborate with people who um, were absolutely thought differently than I did. You know, they basically thought they got nothing coming. And of course, I felt that, well, wait a second, if they've got nothing coming, they have nothing to lose either, which makes it more dangerous, right? So. so well, that's, uh, a, that's, an, yeah. that's, a, that's a tricky, you know, position to operate from, in my view, is that. Well, that was a part of a conversation we had backstage, just that I'm really very pro-planet. I'm not much into the right. conspiracy and that. I'm into, this is the planet we're on. Look what we're doing to the planet. Would you do that in any other place you live? Would you do that in your own home? Really? That makes no sense. That we're on this ship and we're traveling together in spite of what we might think, that we are social animals. I don't mean we have to get together and hug and kiss and do all that all the time, but I just think we... There's common points, and as you say, your three, the curiosity, compassion, and collaboration, those are good points to operate from. We have have stuff that needs to be worked on. We could get together and talk about it, and maybe we could fix some of those things there, and the planet's better for it. Right. And in fact, this is why I sort of aligned myself with this sort of new thing in Carson City which is called the Connections Group, and it's really started by a philanthropist. But he started it because he uh, had read, you know, the Harvard studies on how social connections create increased longevity. But also he uh, sold his company for a lot of money and wanted to give back to the community. So this Connections Group in Carson is meeting every two weeks, And he set it up sort of interestingly where you've got some, let's say, base players. I'm sort of one of the helpers in this area where they have a group of people. Uh, Someone is picked, you know, in his sort of base group of giving a 15-minute talk. And uh, 
last week it was relationship with finances. And then everyone who attends was asked, you know, on a scale one to 10, you know, from zero is horrible relationship with finances to incredible relationship with finances, where you are on the spectrum. And then what was the greatest financial decision that benefited you in your life? And a lot of the women said, divorcing my horrible husband, <laughs> you know, which was not exactly what I was thinking about. And then they break into small groups. You have a facilitator. And then people share their stories. And the vulnerability and the connection is all at a deeper emotional level that you don't normally see in other groups. Um, you know, it sort of reminds me sometimes a, bit, a little bit about like AA where people or NA where people share their vulnerabilities and then they sort of help each other. But this is strictly on all sorts of different human topics. And uh, so he wants to do it at the community level. He wants to help the um, the senior level. And he had a company that did all the interactive journals for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, multiple state prisons, and internationally as well. And so when he sold his company, he wanted to still give back. And mm. uh, and so that's how I sort of got roped in, because I know him. And, and this week, I'll be speaking at uh, another assisted living place, because uh, a lot of the uh, older people in these places, you know, they get stuck and they they sometimes really enjoy someone from the outside coming in and mm-hmm. and like entertaining and, you know, and seeing them, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, I'll be doing that this week. That's and, good. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. <laughs> dealing with the senior group because, uh, you know, some of them are very set in their ways and then some really surprise you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, I can throw in the prison stories, which a lot of times they really like just because of the entertainment value. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, All right. Uh, Yeah, there will be another show. We have so many categories. Um, this is the, the time at which I'd like to ask you to remind people where they can find your book and to find out more about your work and how, if they want, they can book a session for you with hypnotherapy. Oh, where yeah, do they find yeah. all that? All right. So the big thing with the book, it is on Amazon. And I also did the Audible because some people just like to listen to the book when they're driving. Oh. Uh, my website is discoverdrg.com. And... Uh, If they want to contact me uh, for hypnotherapy or any interest, the best thing is to do my email, which is k-g-e-d-n-e-y-m-d at gmail.com. Great. Thank you. Yeah, there's also a contact page on my website, but I'm never quite sure how good that is anymore. (laughs) <laughs> ah, the web, the the wicked tubes of the web. You just never know. Um, oh, and I have to share this, Richard, just because it's funny. You know, I got mm-hmm. one of those chat GPT brain, I don't know, applications oh, yeah. just because I'm right out, out of curiosity. And I asked, what are the 10 things you know about Karen Gedney, MD? I just had a curiosity, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, because it picks things off the web, right? So I realized, okay, they listed eight things that are true just because I, I, I put them on the web. And then it made up two entirely different things. One, it said, and uh, Karen Gedney is a black, uh, black belt artist, I mean, a black belt in this weirdo jiu-jitsu something or other. And then it said, and Dr. Gedney won a prestigious national award in psychiatry. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah. oh, really? How did yeah. I miss that one? But it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of weird, you know, that, okay, one, you can see why it picks up things that are, it can just glean from your website. But then where in the world does it just make up things? Or where did that come from? That's the thing yeah. that I don't know. 
I've I've had the same experience. I put my name in or my website actually to find some information. And yeah, it's yeah. Like Andy has a degree in mechanical engineering. I'm thinking, wait, no, <laughs> no. What are you just? And they're just making it. You know, it's it just there's somehow we get a relationship to a certain term or a thing, and then that just goes. Oh yes, of course he's got a doctorate, and, and no, none of that. It's just <laughs> AI. AI. It needs work. It needs to learn yeah, about yeah, itself. Yeah, right. But it is, I mean, it's just interesting what it makes up. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, yeah. why do they think I'd be a black male, I mean, a black belt artist or something? Right. You know? but, <laughs> it's, it's, I know. you know, ballroom dancing, black like, belt, of course, AI, it all goes I, together. I, I yeah. don't have a black belt and, and I don't in any way think I ever got a psychiatry award. So. Right. Nope. Nope. Well, thank you so much. That was great. I knew it would be great. I'm glad we finally got connected so we could make oh, this work. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. 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 Thank you very much. And everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Thank you, Richard. Bye. Bye.